Hi, my name's Andrea. I'm a reality TV addict, and this is Reality We Trust. I've always been captivated by film, photography, music, and all things entertainment from an early age. I would welcome my dad home from work as a child by putting on productions in our living room, dressing up, and dancing to Madonna's On the Dance Floor album. You think this might have had something to do with me growing up admiring pop culture and entertainment? From Madonna to practicing Britney Spears' circus in my room at age 7 for my elementary school's lip sync competition, where I did not place, that's okay. (laughs) I think pop culture definitely shaped my perception of media, my personality, and my taste. So when it came to my thesis project, you know this big thing at the end of your four-year degree at a prestigious design school, um, on top of that like 12 years of being in school prior to. I think it felt funny to me doing this project on reality entertainment because isn't it all fake? Isn't it all just this facade to sell more albums for more weekly viewers, likes, and follows? My name is Andrea Schnarr. I'm a senior at Parsons School of Design in New York City, completing my degree in strategic design and management. Like many, when the coronavirus hit, I went back home to live with my parents. This, as a 21-year-old, was hard to say the least. I was reminded of really bad moments from my past, and my outlet beyond Pilates and spinning on my off-brand Peloton was watching reality TV. It's something I've always loved, was curious about, and was able to relate to and ultimately enjoy. In this podcast, I intend on doing those exact same things and ask questions on a perception of reality TV, media, and technology, and how this makes the society we are today. Reality We Trust is about testing the boundaries between our own visceral experiences and the ones we see translated onto screens of all sizes. I'm here to debunk our obsession with pop culture, our quick judgment of reality TV being trash, and how reality entertainment is much more meaningful to the fabric of our culture than we think. Today we will be speaking on the realness question. The question of, is reality TV real or complete fabrication? As an audience and industry as a whole, what separates the fame of someone's quote-unquote real personality apart from someone playing a scripted, fictitious character. People have a hard time accepting reality TV because it has to do with real people, their love life, their struggles, their wealth, their class. Notoriety of being a star by simply living your life, not by playing a scripted, fictitious character. A catchy phrase tossed around these days is main character complex, and the other day here in the East Village of New York, I don't know, COVID has brought something out where literally every street there is something being filmed, which is amazing. Um, In New York, it's almost impossible to get around, park a car, etc. But (laughs) they were filming a TV show right outside my apartment with these massive lights on cranes hovered overhead. So I started filming an Instagram story naturally, and I was pretending to be a main character and saying, like, being the main character in my own reality show is so demanding. What, like it's hard? Reality TV reinforces the notion that by living your own life and asserting a unique personality or identity, you can gain fame, riches, and hey, maybe your own TV show. Now, interchangeably, I may use the term reality entertainment over reality TV. And when I mention reality entertainment, I'm referring to more than just 
the competition relational dramas or talk shows that are considered unscripted shows. But the disposable immediate tools we have today that project a better understanding of life out there. TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, the new wave of tabloids and paparazziing is all at the disposal of our own fingertips. In part of my interviews, I spoke to a psychologist who was part of the process of helping producers and networks screen contestants for their psychological makeup and personalities. Dr. Richard Levesque is a licensed psychologist who, in his clinical practice, consults companies and media experts using his research and expertise in personalities. Dr. Levesque aided with the casting for CBS's first season of the groundbreaking series Survivor in 2000. Beyond an audition tape, he told me about the extensive studies and interviews that have been conducted to evaluate a player's success. How will they react in a situation? How will they get along with others, along with their physical and mental toughness? As viewers, we turn a blind eye to this, thinking that these real people, not characters, are just swept away from their everyday lives in the middle of America, being a middle school teacher, into a foreign terrain and competition to survive and be liked. My interview with Dr. Levesque indicated that these real people go through an almost dehumanizing process, where their flaws and personality makeup are scrutinized to produce the best show. I later, throughout my interview, spoke to a former general council member at CBS who brought up these findings from an internal perspective. From an internal perspective, of course this was necessary for legal reasons, safety and precautions from future suits. At the core of the network, they are looking to limit their liabilities, especially in reality TV, where these quote-unquote real-life occurrences are played out in the most entertaining way, but minimizing the legal risks. I can't help but look at reality TV shows now as this type of formula. I mean, I was talking the other day to my dad, and I was like, there has not been one moment um, <laughs> since high school where Y equals MX plus B, MX plus B, what is it? Y equals MX plus B has served me purpose. But I think what I just said proves that like reality TV shows can be boiled down into this type of formula because the casting, the producing, the setting, it's like add a little sass, add a little troublemakers, add a little like too smart for this and boom, you have your dream team cast and show for set for success and set for 40 more seasons like Survivor has endured. So the notion of fake news or a fabricated plot is very much in line with the directing and editing that any media or personal bias picks up upon. This is what I like to view and examine through the lens of content versus context. It's acknowledging our bias, the character's bias, and the medium's bias and stressing the context of it all. This requires viewers to use a critical thinking mindset when taking it all in. But when speaking to 300 members of a pop culture group, shout out to the Juicy Scoopers, Heather McDonald, You Are Genius, most turn to reality entertainment to escape from their everyday lives and decompress. And let me tell you, I relate. I'm here to gush about fun, the glitz, the glamour of the topic, but I'm also here to teach myself and teach others about the innovation within this industry. There's this fine line between credible media and not credible media, especially fake news and 21st century hello. And it's the same for reality-based entertainment and scripted media. I mean, 
There is this fine divide between contextualizing the masses of content we take in as consumers in 2021. It's hard to remove reality from any sort of media. At heart, I'm a creative strategist, and when approaching any topic or assignment, I turn to history. So when considering reality entertainment, I turn to its roots, the history behind the genre that is so quickly dismissed as a meaningless fraction of networks' portfolios. Even before that, I get caught up in the history of storytelling, art, and depictions of society throughout time. I'm brought back to my high school art class, art history class, learning about the Chavot Caves in France. These are cave paintings done in black, white, and these terracotta pigments um, with like hand smudgings on a cave wall depicting life dating back to 30,000 BC. I see this type of documentation, art making, and storytelling no less telling of society at a given point in time than Keeping Up with Kardashians when it premiered in 2007 on the E! Network. Yet one gets remembered as a scholarly historical relic, and the other is passed off as trash. Now this is the level of examining that excites me, but I know that not everyone feels the same way. My intent in the next little while is to boil down my six months of digging, contemplating, and hunting down reality entertainment's misjudgments throughout the years into a short podcast episode. Located on the slope of the Santa Inez Mountains, Santa Barbara faces south on the Pacific Ocean, 90 miles north of Los Angeles. This is the setting for our series. The series is about the William C. Loud family of Santa Barbara, California. For seven months, from May 30th, 1971 to January 1st, 1972, the family was filmed as they went about their daily routine. There is no question that the presence of our camera crews and their equipment had an effect on the Louds, one which is impossible to evaluate. It is equally true that the Louds had an effect on us, the filmmakers, for this was a cooperative venture in every sense of the word. The Louds are neither average nor typical. No family is. They are not the American family. They are simply an American family. That was the intro of the series created by Craig Gilbert and American Family. An American Family is considered to be the first reality TV show, rather more of a docu-relational programming, following a family through the lens of cinema verite. Docu-relational, you may say? Yes. Really, any documentary is reality entertainment. We are watching for entertainment value, the recalling of real events, events that have a date and a place with a cast of actual people. At the time an American Family came out, there, was, there wasn't the mass genre of reality TV, so docu-relational programming was often the term passed around. 
not quite a documentary, but not quite the scripted and heavily produced show like The Brady Bunch at the time. So this archetype of the genre, An American Family was shot from 1971 to 1972. The 12 episode show followed around the Loud family, a Santa Barbara based modern esque nuclear family made up of husband and wife, Bill and Pat Loud, and five children Delilah, Michelle, Grant, Kevin, and the infamous Mr. Lance Loud. The series premiered in 1973 on PBS. Yup, PBS public broadcasting service, which had just started as a program distributor in 1969. Its purpose was to become a nationwide public broadcaster dedicated to educational programming, education, culture, public affairs. It was to act as a nonprofit organization vetting for more programming with a substance that could serve the American public. The television was now becoming the source of information to the average American household. I find it telling that a programming cable channel with the intent of spreading American culture and education aired which was later dubbed to be the first reality TV show. Right then and there, reality entertainment broke out as a medium of educational storytelling that wasn't scripted. Even titling it under a docu-relational programming shows how that hyphenated term stressed the educational documentary part apart from typical TV shows of the time. It's light, it's funny, but it's also relational and dramatic. An American Family served as this projected image of idealization during a time of such social upheaval in America. It makes me think, what sparked the idea or push for the public broadcasting service to exhibit American life in the 70s like this? Well, the same year An American Family premiered, the Watergate hearings took place, Segregation in Southern schools was slowly fading away. The term homosexual was removed from the American Psychiatric Association's handbook. The Supreme Courts held their ruling on Roe v. Wade. The feminist movement was taking place. The Equal Rights Amendment was trying to be passed. And the slow decline of the Vietnam War all took place in these early years of the 70s. It's not a coincidence. But it raises the question of media's involvement in shaping a world or nation's perspective. What masks reality? But at the same time, what truth does it bring out about a reality? It indicates that the same year this now groundbreaking archetype of reality TV premiered was also when a lot of political and social upheaval took place. And guess what? The parallels between that and the premiere of Keeping Up with the Kardashians on E! Network in 2007 coincide in a lot of those ways. One being that both in 1973 and in 2007 to 2008, the Writers Guild of America went under a strike. This is an industry-wide organization led by the Hollywood Trade Union, where writers in Hollywood are represented under the WGA. Strikes often revolve around compensation and residuals, an issue of itself within the industry. It brings to light the reliance Hollywood has with the WGA. Shows and films need writers. Reality TV does not. Reality writes itself. Some back history. The Oscars, formerly known as the Academy Awards, started in 1929 by MGM Studios. It's strictly awards films that are voted upon by the 60,000 or so industry leaders who are a part of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The Golden Globes started later in 1944 
honoring a wider spread of talent in both television and films, which are then voted on by 93 members that are a part of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. I bring these awards up because today I'm going to be sitting down talking to Kristen Moss and Andrew Ward, two of the creators of the American Reality Television Awards, award show, excuse me. And this is something I came across later in my research that they have this award out in the industry. They started as the system of making a more substantial space for reality entertainment industry professionals to network and they've done a remarkable job at making this award grow within the past few years of when it started in 2012. Um, most often when I'm presenting my research at school or to advisors I have at my university, I they say, what can you do with this? What actionable prototype? We, we use design-centric words. Prototype. Can you present as your final? Is there a museum? Is there an award? Sure, there's an award. And I'll be talking to Kristen and Andrea a little bit about this, but there needs to be a bigger push for this acknowledgement within the industry for more actionable resources and awards and recognitions that really debunk and break down the importance of reality entertainment in the totality of the entertainment sphere. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. I'll be linking where you can vote, where you can participate, where you can engage with American Reality Television Awards, and please enjoy. Wonderful. Okay, thank you for meeting with me. Of course. No, thanks for reaching out. But um, this is a component of my thesis, which proven to be, this is just the start of the project, really. Like it's going to be something that I'm always working on, whether it's through like this podcast or um, through social media, I hope to like continue it as a passion project. Well, then we'll definitely keep in touch because that's been our mission since we started the awards. And <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Thank for you sure. for championing that. <laughs> no, of course, like all the feedback I've gotten from industry professionals like you two have been like, we need more momentum like that. We need more people that care. And there's like this fine divide between um, kind of like scholars who just write about the subject of like media and then there's the industry professionals and then there's the viewers. So it's like, so I was looking to talk to you about the award and also just like this dichotomy between unscripted and scripted and their differences in like perceivance by viewers. Oh, absolutely. I, I can talk all about it. So <laughs> which is a loaded question and it's like not going to be answered here. It's not going to be answered in one semester of my project, but something right. I'm always going to be asking and curious about. So do you mind telling me a bit about you and your experience? And Sure. Um, you know, just a brief history of how I got into the industry is I kind of fell into it. I didn't go to school for casting or for really media at all. I, I was in a communication studies pl program um, and I took like a video production course and then on my uh, study abroad program, I did some video production, but so it was something that I always liked, but I'd never considered it as a career. I answered a Craigslist ad while I was living in Arizona. I was 26 years old and I decided to apply for a casting recruiter position, which I really didn't know what that was or that that type of role existed. And within six months, I decided to move to Los Angeles to pursue casting as a career versus just as like a side gig. And I kind of kind of went full force into casting for reality television, which then transitioned into Andrew, my business partner, Andrew Ward and I meeting each other um, because we wanted to start a networking group for reality TV professionals because the age old saying, it's who you know, 
but who do you know if you don't know anyone? So you have to kind of try to meet people and try to expand your horizons. And that's what we did with our networking group, which then transitioned into our award show, which is going into our eighth annual show. So um, I kind of took one chance happenstance of applying for a reality TV position. And now I'm a true advocate for reality TV. I believe that it can change the lives of those who appear on television in a good way. <laughs> um, you know, obviously we hear the stories of people who are overexposed and maybe they have gotten, you know, taken their fame to a, a level that maybe people look at them in a certain light. But I do believe that the competition series out there are offering opportunities to people who never would have had that chance before. Um, you know, it can catapult a, a career. It can, you know, take a home cook and make them into a chef. It can take a designer and give them a platform. It can do so many things for so many people. So thank you for advocating for reality television because I am right there with you. <laughs> Well, the casting director then determines who of those interviewed candidates would go off to the network. So the network is ultimately making the final decisions of who they want on the show. And all that entire casting process happens to get the best people seen by the network. And just there, like, I think as a starting point, like we, you were talking about, like, we want people that seem the most unlikely to be on reality TV. And as viewers, we see that like a middle school teacher from middle of America being swept away on like survivor. But yeah. like what you just explained is that like, there is a huge process and kind of like the behind the scenes directing and editing that's not necessarily perceived as a viewer. And that's why I think one of the reasons viewers are just like, uh, reality TV. They don't understand the work. And I think you just explaining that proves that there's like so many levels that that goes through. And I've interviewed other um, kind of like a psychologist that did the first season of Survivor and like the personality tests behind that. And like, it's almost dehumanizing that you're breaking a person down into a character. So I just think that's so interesting from like a internal perspective and insight that you uh, just provided. And as far as, you know, the difference between scripted and unscripted is, and I'm not saying that scripted casting is easy by any means. You know, I was watching the behind the scenes of Modern Family and they had to see almost 200, almost 200 actors for each role for that family. So there is a ton of work behind it. But for the most part, scripted casting directors are not walking the streets looking for characters. They are not hunting down people. They're putting out the breakdowns to agencies, um, to acting schools, wherever they kind of feel like those big actors are going to be coming from. And then they're selecting based on, you know, what comes to them. Mm -hmm. When it comes to reality TV, we are casting a very wide net and cherry picking who we want. And then these people are not polished. <laughs> you know, they do what they want. And the bigger, the better, the, the more personality, the better. But sometimes we have to hone them in and they don't know how to do an interview properly. And sometimes those make for the best characters, but mm -hmm. it's not always easy. They're not walking in perfectly professional. Maybe they're not on time. Maybe their lighting isn't great. You know, we have to kind of walk them through the steps, yeah. but it's worth it because then we get that raw character that needs to be seen on television yeah the realness and the relatable that's like not written behind the scenes and then someone's just spitting that out 
pivoting a bit more about the awards, Andrew was telling me that your first, your first award show was in person. And then since then it's all been like a virtual award show. We actually had four live events. Okay. Yeah. We had four live events. The first one was at Greystone Manor, which is like a nightclub in Los Angeles. The second one was at Supper Club on Hollywood Boulevard. And then years three and four, we did them at Avalon Hollywood, which is also it's on Hollywood and Vine. It's like a big nightclub. Um, and in my mind, we I always wanted that setting. I didn't want a theater style setting where all of these characters have to sit down and behave and you know stare at a stage for however many hours. We wanted a social environment. We wanted a place where you know the fans of reality TV could mingle with their favorite characters. But, you know, the Big Brother contestants are fans of the MasterChef Junior Kids and American Ninja Warriors hanging from the rafters. That's what we wanted. We wanted dance mom moms hanging out with the deadliest catch fishermen. You know, I mean, it's yeah. hilarious. We put together an event that allows all of these personalities to just thrive and when they showed up they are fans of each other it's you know the drag queens from rupaul's drag race are hanging out with you know the people from love island i mean it's it's, it's amazing um but yes we did go virtual for years five, six, and seven. And we are going virtual for this year, uh, year eight as well. Before pandemic hit, we started going virtual just because it made it a little bit simpler for us to produce as a very small team. And we've gotten some big names with, you know, how we set that up. So we are hoping to get back to a live event next year though. Well, even that, I think like you just have a leg up in the virtual sense that you know how to conduct this, the Golden Globes that had just happened, not equating artists exactly to the Golden Globes or the Academy Awards, but like they're really struggling to execute the award shows on this new digital wave that we're in during pandemic life. Where do you see the award show going and like, the next five years? How can viewers, how can the industry within, um, how can I, how can we like propel this forward? What's your dream of it? Yeah. I mean, I feel like, you know, right now we own the show outright. We're not, you know, partnered up with the network or anything. Um, we feel like the networks, because they all submit to us, it would be potentially a conflict of interest for a network to air the award show because, you know, then they're either going to want all their shows to win or people are going to think that if they do win, it was rigged on in their favor. Mm -hmm. So I feel like a streaming platform is the best route for us, um, especially because right now they're even talking. I, I saw an article the other day about how for a while they've been trying or production companies have been trying to figure out a way to expose social media stars in a reality format, but it hadn't really worked before because the people who are watching the, the YouTubers and the TikTokers and the people who are exposed on social media platforms, those viewers aren't potentially tuning into MTV or VH1 or a cable channel. They may not even have cable, mm -hmm. but they do have Netflix and they do have Hulu and they do have you know, maybe even Discovery Plus and Disney Plus. So the fan base 
for the social media talent is now watching the streaming networks. So I feel like that's kind of where we can head is to a streaming network, especially because we have a public vote and our public vote is very much promoted online. It's promoted through social media channels. So a lot of our fans are finding out about the vote and interacting with their favorite reality talent through social media. So I feel like the streaming networks is where we belong. And there's not a, there's not an award show on streaming right now. Not a, you know, like a original uh, award show on a streaming network. So we'd love to be the first. Yeah, that would be awesome. Streaming networks, I think, need some more reality TV, TLC, dare I say. Um, Like, <laughs> I, I think their production is not the best. They could have within COVID, like for you, how has COVID impacted you? Has business stayed the same? Has the means production expanded? Has it become, isn't reality TV so much more easy to execute during COVID times versus scripted set shows? Yeah. So a little background um, and actually an interesting topic to compare um, reality to scripted. So a majority of scripted workers, so the people behind the scenes in the scripted world, they have unions, they are unionized, they have benefits with their unions, they're able to strike if they don't feel comfortable working in certain environments, they're able to collect you know, 401k when they retire, the majority of unscripted workers do not have those things. And I actually have been an advocate for trying to get unscripted workers unionized. However, during the pandemic, because there's been no union really protection, we've been able to move forward with a lot of our productions. And not to say that it's because we, we're not union, but it's because there are less guidelines that we have to follow. Um, they're following guidelines as far as testing and protocols, as far as, you know, statewide necessity, but we're able to kind of get away with some of those, you know, um, it's, it's a little bit different than scripted. So scripted really went away. Scripted has been very much impacted and reality and unscripted has been impacted. But I also feel like in the casting side, producers and the, and the development teams have been itching and clawing to create something unique during this time. And the first people on the job typically is casting. So all of these new development projects and programs and ideas have come to the casting side and filtered through us because they need contestants, they need participants, they need cast members to make these shows happen. So as far as the casting side of reality TV, even if these shows that are being cast don't end up going into production, the casting team still works. So I feel like during the pandemic, there was a little bit of, oh my gosh, what's going on? Is this going to happen? Is this going to continue? Are we even going to be able to produce content. And what we're realizing is, is the development teams have ramped up. The development teams have come up with incredible ideas and put it out to us to try to find those characters for those shows. Now, whether they're getting produced, some are, some aren't, but there has been a really, really creative surge in reality television because of that. And like I said, going back to the whole scripted world, I think it just a lot of a lot of hoops that they have to jump through to get a production on board with going full on with, with scripted, but with reality, I think they can kind of play with um, some of the rules that are in place, I guess, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally. Those are really like the questions I have, but yeah. like expanded greatly on them. And I 
totally appreciate that and taking the time out of your day to talk to me. But um, quickly, do you have a favorite reality TV show? So my mom was here with me for, I just had a baby. My mom was here with me for a month and we binged like three seasons of Amazing Race. And I feel like it's at the top of my list right now because we're all closed in and we can't travel the world. And it just kind of shows you what's out there and gets you ready to go and ready, itching to see the world again. Um, I really love Holy Moly. It's hilarious. It makes me laugh out loud every time I watch it. Um, and I, let's make a deal. I worked on years ago with Wayne Brady and it's honestly one of my favorite shows as a daytime really make me laugh. And I've been a fan since I was a kid. So I think those are the three that really tug at my heartstrings. Awesome. <laughs> what about you? What's your favorite? I'm honestly more of, um, like the relational, uh, reality TV shows. I love real housewives, Vanderpump rules, like all of those below deck really bravo. Yeah. <laughs> I say that grudgingly, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, they make some good copy. My, yeah. I'm trying to expand my horizons with all of them. And specifically you brought up like daytime TV. Like that's just like a genre that fits into the unscripted, but like, I need to explore more. And even right now, like watching, um, the trial of like Derek Chavon, Chavin, mm-hmm. Chavin. Right. Um, it's just like, daytime television unscripted like actual news televised trials like it all comes together like it's not just reality tv and i think your website categorizes it too as like reality entertainment or reality programming and it's everywhere it's everything yeah absolutely i mean you know if you're looking to get inspired you know, take a look at the voting ballot because it's still live until April 15th. Mm-hmm. Um, if you text ARTAS to 40691, you'll get the voting link to vote and it's open through April 15th. But there are some shows that are incredible and there's streaming networks. I mean, there is so much content out there. And I really feel like our award show captures all of that. So take a look. If you're looking to get inspired. No, I will. Yeah. And when does your next award show take place? So voting ends 15th of April. Yes. And then the awards is actually going to happen in the beginning of summer. We don't have an exact date yet. Um, It's a lot of moving parts, a lot of moving pieces, getting the presenters on board, getting the winners, you know, speeches in. So we're looking at the beginning of summer. So probably June, right around June. Well, thank you so much. We'll be in contact. I'll uh, keep in touch and awesome where this goes. Thank you so much. And good luck with everything. I mean, it's incredible what you're doing. Thank you very much. All right. (laughs) Have a good one. I really want to thank Chris Moss and Andrew Ward so much for giving me their time. I will have Andrew's portion of the interview up on my Instagram in the Reels section if you would like to listen to that. And just thank you very much for listening to this first episode. We've kind of traveled from me speaking on a scripted sort of level to a freeform ramble to an interview to a concluding thought. And take that as you will for the content versus context of this project in this episode. It would be easy to just write this down and hand it in paper, but I want this to be so much more. I want this to be more engaging, more enjoyable for both me and you. So I hope you stick around and we have some great episodes coming up. This is Reality We Trust and this was The Realness Question. Thanks. Bye.